Luke chapter 14, verse number 15, a familiar parable perhaps. And one of them that sat at meat with the Lord Jesus, heard the things that he had just been saying, he said unto him, this man said to Christ, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded. And yet there is room. And the Lord said unto his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were initially bidden shall taste of my supper. We can easily make this story into a picture of evangelism. This servant went out and he was trying to invite people to meet his Lord, his master, his savior. The poor and the maimed and the blind and the halt were willing to come to the feast that was initially provided to others. And the others, and the Lord is speaking about Israel in the context, those others were not willing to partake of the grace of the Lord. There is a little play on words here in this text, and I won't go into great depths, but you may have noticed, and they with all one consent began to make excuse, saying, I pray thee have me excused. Excuse and excused. They wanted to be excused from this feast, so they began to make excuses. When we are testifying to our acquaintances about their need of Christ, very few are particularly interested. They have businesses. They have earthly possessions and properties that need to be tended. They have families which should come first, they think. They have excuses. They don't have good reasons but they have excuses not to deal with what you are trying to share with them about the Savior. So they will not repent. They will not trust Christ. There are hundreds of excuses. There's probably one for every lost person in the world. I don't know. Maybe they share a few of those. And we have no way to prepare for all of them. But there is no reason to be worried or anxious about meeting these people and talking with these people. The Lord has heard every one of those excuses. 
And if we go into this evangelistic situation, depending upon the Lord, then he will give us the words that we need to answer these excuses. I have personally found, because I am one of these kind of people, I have personally found that to prepare mentally to visit so-and-so is more problematic than not to do so. The more I try to prepare, the more anxious I become. And the more I envision this to be a difficult situation coming up here, the more I am slow to enter this uh, uh, conversation. Trust the Lord. Despite having just told you to trust the Lord, here are three or four excuses that you might want to consider. Just as background, and perhaps they can help you with other excuses that might come up. Your friend might say, I can't be a Christian in the sort of business that I'm in. I have bought a piece of ground. This may be a sincere problem with this person. Or it might be just a a red herring balloon filled with nothing at all. Ask your friend what sort of work he does. He may be utterly mistaken that a Christian can be in that work situation. But then again, he might be in an industry which some people, some Christians, consider to be questionable. He has been told by some Christians that he cannot work in a grocery store that sells liquor. Can't do it. Of course, the man who is telling him he can't work there buys his groceries there because he has no option. That's just the way it is. But, oh, I'm not working there. I'm just leaving my money there to help support this uh, wine-buying grocery store owner. It's not very logical. Those same people eat at Applebee's once in a while because, well, I'm not earning a living at this uh, uh, place, this tavern that serves uh, uh, hamburgers. Uh, I just go there to eat, so that's okay. It's not okay. We've got, we've got two standards here. Your friend may work at a gas station which sells lottery tickets. He drives an Uber. I would say taxi, but we hardly have any taxis anymore. And what this fellow has to do on Friday night is go down to the tavern and pick up that drunk and take him home. He's contributing to the delinquency of a major, uh, a drinker. Uh, oh, you can't, you can't be a Christian and drive an Uber. Uh, he's an investment counselor. And his boss wants him to promote these questionable stocks and bonds. Stocks. Or he's a liberal politician. Therefore, he has committed the unpardonable sin. <laughs> can't be saved. Or maybe it's just a a reasonably good job that will not allow him to be uh, home on Sundays. He's a long-distance truck driver. He's a a pilot for a major airline or something like this, so he can't be in church. Therefore, I can't be a Christian. 
tell you, friend, what the Lord did with the publicans that came to him. The Pharisees, including Christian Pharisees, might have demanded that Roman tax collector quit his job before he can be a Christian. But we don't see the Lord telling them to do that. He just deals with their spiritual condition. What did John tell the soldiers that came to him? Did he tell them all to desert, leave their position, draw the ire of the, the army? If at all possible, table any talk about the job that they are doing. If you look deep enough, we could condemn almost every employment in this society of ours. Mara, you got to quit UPS. You don't know what's in those boxes. Might be some terrible thing. Uh, lay that aside. Deal with the fact that here's a person who needs a redeemer. He needs to be saved. When the Lord gives that man a new heart and he begins to look around him and see what other Christians are like, the Lord will convict him about whether or not he should leave that employment, find something else. Leave that to the Lord. Don't use your logic, which can very easily have flaws in it, as I've just tried to point out. On the other hand, there are industries which are truly ungodly things. The man may be a bartender. He needs to leave that job. He may work in a smoke shop or a pot shop. He needs to leave that job. Again, table for a few minutes any discussion about employment and turn to Mark 8.36. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Notice that the Lord Jesus uses the word profit there. Not with a PH, but with F. There is no amount of profit in the world equal to the value of a soul. There's no amount of millions and gold and silver that's equal to your soul. Consider that. 1 John 2.17 Remember that the world passeth away. And the profits thereof and the lusts thereof, they're going by the wayside at some point in time. Consider what is important. The profits of the world will all one day be gone, but your soul is eternal. It will never end. But where will it be throughout eternity? Make him understand that he would be better off losing every dollar that he has starting over with the Lord than to lose his soul. This is the important thing. If he's willing to, at the very least, understand this intellectually, and he won't grasp the spiritual part of it until he's born again, but if he, at the very least, begins to understand what you're trying to say, then take him to Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things shall be added unto you. What things? Take him to the context. We're talking about clothing. We're talking about food. We could extend that to friends and family. Point to the context and show him what things the Lord can give him. And ask, how much ability, how much authority does God have? It's infinite, isn't it? He can do all things. If we are willing to sacrifice things for the sake of our soul, trusting Him to save us, we can also trust Him to supply our needs in the future. He can meet our needs. The Lord is able to replace those things which we might sacrifice for Him. Your friend might say, but I will lose all my friends. If I do what you're telling me to do. The only friends and family that many people have, if not most people have in this world, are ungodly people. Some more, some less, but without Christ. Sinful people. And your friend may realize that if he becomes a Christian, he will lose those acquaintances that he has enjoyed for months or years. And even his family may turn their backs on him. This is a genuine and very serious problem which is not easily overcome. Admit that. Tell him, I understand. This is real. You might share some things from your own background which can be of help. But then tell him as lovingly as possible and this is not easy, that he's better off without that kind of friend because they are enemies of God. When I'm preparing these lessons, my mind is working away, spinning uselessly most of the time, but every once in a while it catches on something that would be part of a, a sermon if I was preaching a sermon rather than a lesson. Uh, Let's say that your friend, no, your friend's friend, uh, has uh, disturbed the mob in some way. And there's a contract out on his life. For you to be standing next to this man whose life is marked puts you in danger. There is an assassin out to destroy this unsaved man. His name is the Almighty God. Standing beside him may not be a very safe place to be. Both seriously and in jest, people have talked about, well, God may send a, a bolt of lightning down and strike me. Well, it has happened. It has happened. And besides... Those people need Christ just as much as you need Christ. Your salvation may be the best thing that enters into the life of that person. To see you, you his friend, trust in Christ and, and, and be converted 
with a life-changing experience may be exactly what he needs to see because that's his need at all. Your friend may not immediately understand that, but it is true. Furthermore, and this is reaching into the fear that he has, furthermore, if he truly loves you, he won't cast you aside. What kind of friend is he? If he's a genuine friend, he will put up with this new silly thing in your life until he finds out it's not silly at all. And family, they can turn against us too. But that's not guaranteed. Don't use that as an excuse. James 4.4 is a tough verse, but it is important. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. What is enmity? It is to be an enemy. The enemy of God. The adulterers referred to in this verse are spiritual. He is talking about, James is talking about people who worship the things of the world when they should be worshiping the Lord, and that is idolatry, that is spiritual adultery. The adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? To put other things or other people before the Lord is to make God one's enemy. You don't need to go into the fact that he already is, but uh, this is an example of why there's this enmity. And what will happen to the enemy of God? Is he going to stand against the Lord and and, uh, uh, thwart the punishment God has for him? God is God. It's a dangerous thing to be the enemy of God. There's no doubt about what will happen to him. On the other side of the question is Proverbs 13.20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. You can tell your friend, he won't believe you perhaps, but it's true, and you can tell him that if you come to Christ, you will begin to have new friends and you will have a new family. Better friends. You'll become a part of the family of God. Come with me to the Lord's house and meet other people who were at one point just like you. And now they're enjoying enjoying other people and enjoying the things of the world that aren't tainted with wickedness. Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, uh, with persecutions, 
and in the world to come, eternal life. What you give up in this world, if it's done properly, will put you in touch with a new family, new friends, new opportunities, uh, not without difficulties, but nevertheless, something that will make your new life far better than your old one. Will he understand? Not unless the Holy Spirit helps him to understand, but give him the scriptures. What does this verse say about the nature of the new family? It is eternal. Will not come to an end. Our earthly relationships do. The spiritual ones don't. A related excuse could involve problems which might arise hinted at in this scripture. Things like persecution. Not only might I lose my friends, not only might I lose my family, but they could actually turn on me and try to hurt me for my new faith in Christ. Never tell anyone that his new life in Christ will be without problems. In fact, they may intensify. It'll be a different kind of problem. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Ask, why do you think this might become true? Isn't it because most of this world hates God and hates the Christ that you are you're discussing with Him? They will be against you, not because of you so much as who you now are associated with, the Lord Jesus. But if the Lord delights in godly living, shouldn't be, we be willing to pay that price for the delight of God, the smile of God, the blessing of God? 2 Timothy 2.12 if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. No matter how badly we are treated, that is nothing compared to what the Lord has promised to the Christian. Romans 8.18 For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Nothing that you suffer in this world will not go unrecognized by the Lord. And with His will and grace, these things you suffer may be uh, corrected by the Lord's blessings for the rest of your life, or maybe not until eternity begins. But the blessings will be there. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Changing excuses. He might say, but Christians are such hypocrites. 
This is not an uncommon excuse used to keep soul winners at bay, but it's also just an excuse. If you try to to deny the existence of hypocrites, you will never get to say another word to him because they exist. They're obvious. They stick out like sore thumbs. Tell your friends that you are just as troubled about the hypocrites as he is. Tell him that God is just as troubled about the hypocrites as he is. And those hypocrites will have to answer to the Lord for their sins and their failures. But the vital question is, what does God say to you? They will have to answer for their sins. What is God saying to you? Romans 14, 12. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Tell him, you may point out some hypocrites to me, but when we stand before God, we will not be able to point to anyone else but ourselves at that time. It's just us and God. Are you ready to give an account of yourself to the all-knowing God? Do you think that God will excuse you because of the sins and failures of other people? That's not logical. God is not unjust. He will deal with them. He will deal with you. Romans 2, 1 through 6. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things, like the hypocrites. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which doeth such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape, escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering toward you, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after the hardness and impenit thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of judgment, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. To that man that you see as a hypocrite and to you as well. Ask, when you point to a hypocrite and you condemn him for what he is doing, what are you doing? Aren't you judging him? Sometimes the judge is doing the same thing as the man he condemns. But even if your sins are different from his sins, you are still judging him, and you are still guilty before God. Forget about that man. Who are you to stand before the Lord? What does verse 3 say will happen to you? Whether or not that other man is a hypocrite, 
you will be judged. Without pointing out that your friend is a hypocrite for pointing at other hypocrites, have him read Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not, that ye be not judged. For what, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, shall it be measured to you again. With what measure you measure, shall it be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the little tiny mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, don't you say that, you let the Lord say that. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And how do we do that? We let the Lord be the ophthalmologist. He might say, well, such and such a Christian has done me personally a great wrong. Your reply could be, while that is true, what has Christ done to harm you? Jeremiah 2.5 Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me, in the Lord, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and become vain, walked after idols, become empty in their religion? What have I done? God says. What has Christ done? Yes, he hurts you. Yes, he professes to be a Christian. Yes, that church harmed you in the past. What has Christ done? How has he hurt you? He may say, there is someone I cannot forgive. He did such and such to me, and I just cannot forgive him. Ask him, are you willing to reject all doctors and hospitals because at some point in time some doctor misdiagnosed uh, uh, a problem that you had? Will your wife or your mother or your husband understand if you refuse to eat hamburgers prepared by his or her hand simply because you went to McDonald's and got a piece of bad meat sometime? The wrong the person has done to you is nothing to the wrong that you are doing to your own soul in throwing aside the message of Christ. Say, as painful as it may sound, you must forgive and move on or perish. At this point, go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I seem to be missing a scripture there. I'm pretty sure I did. Hmm. 
How much pain was involved in the father's heart to permit the sacrifice of his son? There is no pain that you have endured that's any greater than that. Just as it was love which sent Christ to the cross, it may be love which was involved in your suffering. The Lord may have had a purpose in this. Do your best to avoid the excuses people try to throw at you to get you off course. Stay on course. What these people need is Christ. To have answers for a hundred superfluous questions is not going to help him at this point. It may down the road, but not at this point. Stay on task. Continue to give him the gospel. If you really want to help your friend, then go back to Christ crucified. The suffering which he endured for that person's salvation. Our purpose is to glorify the Lord in the salvation of our friends and acquaintances. Strive for that.